Welcome to the IESA Podcast. I'm Jason Neville, Director of Social Media and Publications. Today's podcast is focused on the spring legislative session. Where do things stand? What should should superintendents be worried about? And vice versa, what are some of the positive takeaways from this session? My guests are Madeline McCune, ISA Director of Governmental Relations, and Emily Warnicke, IESA Chief of Staff. I want to start, start with like the timeline. How far is the Illinois General Assembly into this session and how much further do they have to go? Yeah, so as everyone knows, uh, the General Assembly started back in January and we're looking to adjourn around May 19th. Um, Right now, I will say we're at a halfway point. Um, The legislature is out on spring break, which is nice for two weeks, and they plan to come back on April 18th to continue their work. Um, When they come back, there will be a House third reading deadline for Senate bills and a Senate third reading deadline for House bills. And then we will get into the budget process um, in May. So I would expect to see um, a lot of movement in regards to funding and what to expect for your school districts in in the month of May. I want to continue with kind of sort of the big picture look uh, at this legislative session. Uh, how would you guys kind of characterize how the session has gone uh, so far? It seems like from my seat, it was sort of extremely hectic early on with the introduction of you know, unfunded mandates, curriculum mandates. However, you know, ISA and some other man- management groups have had some success beating back uh, those things. And it appears like things are looking better. Just how are, uh, big picture wise, how would you characterize this session? Yeah, I, I would tend to agree as you know those of us who've been in the thick of it that it was pretty fast and furious right off the bat. We were tracking over 600 bills that touched education in some way, shape, or form, plus an additional 150-ish shell bills that could always come back and pop up with ed-related, um, you know, legislation on them. Um, I think during the House Committee deadline week, we had like 100 bills scheduled for hearing. Not all of them ended up being called, of course, because we were able to do some work behind the scenes to to get that, um, to get some of those prevented from being called in committee. But, you know, 100 bills nonetheless being heard between, you know, Tuesday afternoon and, and you know, Thursday night is, is quite a lot. I would say following these deadlines that we saw in the House and Senate in the last two weeks, we're down to about 100 bills that are moving we have about 60 in the House and 40 in the Senate. Of course, again, there's always a possibility for more legislation being filed via shell bill or amendments on current pieces of legislation that could potentially be problematic. But we've narrowed it down to about 100 bills. And I would agree with your characterization that we have been successful in keeping some pretty bad bills from moving so far and and negotiating some of the, some of the original uh, underlying bills to at least an amendment that's more workable for for our districts. Um, and of course, you know, we have over 600 proposals to watch. Some are going to make it through, um, but we have been able to negotiate many of those pretty successfully, I would say. One of the initial proposals that got a lot of attention and raised some eyebrows, I guess, to say the least, was uh, legislation that would have uh, put the educator minimum wage bill uh, up to uh, $20 an hour for different uh, support staff. There was also uh, legislation about uh, the CPI uh, for un- a minimum wage of teachers. Can you just kind of give me a breakdown on some of those pieces of, of legislation on the finance stuff and where they stand? 
Yeah, so there is a couple of pieces of legislation floating around in regards to that. I'll hit on two big pieces. Um, One particular piece, House Bill 3911, Representative Stewart sponsored this. Um, This bill is not moving in its original form, but it was a response by IASA and IASBO um, to negotiate better clarity and consistency for budgeting purposes in regards to the legislation that was passed for a minimum teacher salary of $40,000. We are still working on this, but we do have agreed language with the unions, and we are hopeful that we can continue to see this legislation pushed forward when we come back from spring break. What I will say, too, is that we saw another piece of legislation, House Bill 2784, that was sponsored by Representative Hirschauer. Um, And you're right, this piece of legislation was a minimum wage bill that was asking that um, support staff start out at $20 an hour for the 24-25 school year and continue for those next couple of years until we reached $22 in school year 26-27. This piece of legislation, clearly the concept of it is very important um, and Obviously, we would love to do this. I think our school districts would love to be able to do this, but we just don't have the money at this point. Um, There was a lot of talk about how we could make this happen. Um, Was there a number we could agree to? And at this point, um, during those negotiations, you know, we simply just said, no, Um, we would love to see a dollar amount appropriated um, and would love to discuss other ideas that are non-monetary at this point in order to help the profession and um, encourage people to stay and help address the shortage. There's also been a big push on literacy. Uh, Can superintendents superintendents, uh, expect some changes with how uh, reading is taught in Illinois in the, the coming school year? Uh, Probably not in the coming school year necessarily, but certainly in years, um, you know, beyond that. Uh, At this point, this is a conversation that started last General Assembly and has um, continued on in the offseason. And there are bills moving this session on literacy policy. Um, When you look at literacy policy across the United States, there have been over 35 states that have already enacted some degree of a statewide literacy policy policy. And Illinois is not one of those states. So it's certainly a target for advocacy groups to get some sort of statewide policy implemented. Typically, these policies in other states range widely. Um, Some are simply just looking at increasing the science of reading coursework into higher ed for teacher prep programs, and some go as far as to mandate retention for students who are not able to pass the state assessment at the end of third or fourth grade. It kind of varies across states. But again, 35 states have done this. It has been, um, there's been a podcast called Sold a Story that received national attention and, and went viral um, in the fall, and it certainly generated a lot of discussion at the state house, particularly when we're also seeing an increased focus on IAR reading scores. That's also been a pretty hot topic. So we have seen several bills move through um, 
Some of them, some of them did not move. There was one that would have required universal dyslexia screeners for all students in grades K through two. We were successful with advocacy efforts in, in getting that paused in the house. Um, you know, again, our, our argument there was that this needs to be discussed in the larger context of literacy policy statewide as, as that policy is generated. And we were successful in making that argument. And now as a result, there are a, two bills that are essentially going to direct the State Board of Education to develop a comprehensive literacy plan for the state by January of 2024. So we should see what the results of that policy end up looking like by you know this time next year. We'll have a better idea of what that looks like moving forward. I will add that generally ISBE in, in these conversations has wanted to focus on providing resources to the field as opposed to dictating what curriculum is utilized. Um, I, I would say that the state board typically pushes back you know, pretty heavily against deciding what curriculum is used locally. They they want districts to be able to make those decisions on their own, but they do understand their role as being, you know, a resource. So things have things that have been discussed are, you know, create the state board creating a rubric upon which districts could evaluate their existing reading curriculum to determine if it matches up with these kind of new principles that are merging in line with the science of reading philosophy. Um, there has been discussions about increasing the science of reading instruction into teacher prep programs, providing professional development for teachers who are currently in the field to become more familiar with the science of reading and things of that nature. So we certainly see, see that on the horizon. Uh, what potential uh, curriculum mandates uh, should be on the radar uh, of superintendents? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we've seen quite a few different pieces of legislation move in regards to curriculum. I- I'll give a couple of highlights. Um, one big one I will say that we are continuing to work on is House Bill 2396, which requires full day kindergarten. Um, We've been in discussions about that and working through that piece of legislation as it moves through the Senate. That piece of legislation also says that full-day kindergarten shall provide opportunities for play-based learning. That was a piece of language that was added um, last minute to the legislation as it moved through the House. Our focus, along with many other education stakeholders right now in regards to full-day kindergarten, is to have ISBE create a task force and to actually collect all the necessary data, as well as how much it'll cost districts to do this and what those capital costs will look like. We know that's a big deal. And um, it's not just building new school buildings, right? It's not just all of those things. There's a lot of costs associated with implementing a program like full day kindergarten. You, you know, you've got staff and um when you think about capital, you you think about maintenance. You know, you could be using existing buildings, but you might have to do maintenance work on those um, and construction in order to make it fit. Um, so we're working through that. I'll say another piece of legislation right now that we've seen is Senate Bill 2354. It did start off a lot different, but now essentially it's just asking ISBE to create a science task force. Um, 
wait, it was a science task force, but now it's a working group. And the sponsor just believes that we should be reviewing existing curriculum in order to determine um, how standards on anatomy, physiology, and nutrition are being used in school districts. Um, And then the same sponsor also filed Senate Bill 2348, which requires school districts to provide a minimum of 20 minutes per week of yoga, meditation, and stretching. Um, You know, we communicated with the sponsor that we just don't see that being possible in order to fit everything into the school day. And the sponsor ended up not calling that piece of legislation. Um, A couple of House bills we saw too, House Bill uh, 1633 is asking districts to require a unit of instruction on the experiences of Native Americans. Um, We are hopeful that most school districts do this already. So this should probably be able to be fit in pretty easily. And then House Bill 1375, um, you know, we worked with ISBE and other groups in regards to amendments on this piece of legislation. This bill is coming from an outside group um, who has several other pieces of legislation across the country running like this. But essentially, it's requiring students to complete a standalone course in financial literacy as a graduation requirement. Um, you know, ISBE, as well as I mentioned, a lot of a lot of other education groups mentioned that this could be something that could be rolled into consumer ed that already exists. We thought it was headed that way, but the sponsor did run the bill as it stands, which is a standalone course. We will continue to work in the Senate on this piece of legislation, um, and hopefully we can get it to a place where we're not asking districts to add another graduation requirement. Teacher shortage uh, continues to be uh, a main issue. A uh, couple, uh, couple things on that front. The governor has floated uh, funding of uh, $70, $75 million a year uh, for certain districts, for eligible districts on the teacher shortage. Can you kind of, what have you heard on that? Is that still part of the, uh, the budget talks? And then also just, there's a couple pieces of legislation on the, uh, the the teacher fr- teacher shortage front and the substitute teacher shortage front, so uh, two for the price of one on that question. Sure. So yeah, I would say that the unfilled position survey data has been a hot topic. I, I noticed that last session. I've certainly noticed it this session as well. Lots of legislators are becoming more familiar with that data collection, and the the numbers are staggering. And everyone wants to figure out a way to address this issue. And I, I would say it's probably the, the number one hot topic in the session this year. And as a result, we did see a couple of proposals. One brand new proposal, it came from the governor's budget request. And it's being dubbed the Teacher Pipeline Program. It He is asking for $70 million per year, beginning in FY24, for the funding of this program. And my understanding is that the expectation is that it would last for three years. Um, And based on the on-field position survey data, they did a deep dive into it and found that 80% of the unfilled positions that can be found on the unfilled position survey data came from 170 school districts across the state. And so this $70 million proposal is intended to be targeted to those 170 school districts. 
And from how we've heard it described, those districts would have pretty broad discretion on how they utilize whatever grant funds they were allocated under this program based on, you know, whatever it is that they need to keep teachers in those classrooms and, um, you know, get new teachers to those positions. So that's exciting that we have a have a grant program that is going to give districts pretty broad authority to spend it the way that they identify locally that they need to be able to spend that money for, um, you know, for recruiting and retaining educators. Um, again, this is a budget request from the governor's office. And as Madeline mentioned at the beginning, we probably won't be hearing too much about what the budget ends up shaping up to until the end of session, so close to May, before we find out if this is a proposal that will be funded or not. But it's it's certainly um, it's it's certainly an exciting idea. It's certainly an out of the box idea, and it will be really great for those 170 school districts if it if it's funded by the General Assembly. As far as a couple of bills that are um, addressing the sub shortage, there's really two two measures moving through. Um, House Bill 2147 just allows retirees to return to work for 120 days or 600 hours. We did have that allowance several years ago and it did expire. So it's basically just allowing that again because we continue to see a sub shortage and we hear from members that they would prefer to have people who had professional educator licenses, who are familiar with their school buildings, who are familiar with their technology, you know, people who retired from their districts make great subs. And if you can have someone in a sub position that has that background, that's obviously ideal. And so, you know, we've certainly heard from our members that this would be a welcome proposal. So that 120 days and 600 hours per year would be extended through June of 2026. The other bills relate to the short-term sublicense that was created five years ago. That was set to expire at the end of this school year, and there are two bills moving through. One is from the State Board of Education. Their bill would extend the date for the issuance of those short-term sublicenses through 2028. There's another proposal moving, Senate Bill 2236, that would actually just repeal the June 2023 date permanently. So essentially, it would make a short-term sub-license just a permanent fixture in school code. So both of those pieces of legislation are moving at the moment, and they've, they've been sent to the House. So we'll kind of see what ends up happening there. But it seems like ISB would prefer to just do an extension of this license option as opposed to make it a permit, permanent fixture in school code. Uh, there was a proposal about pausing the uh, ed TPA. Where does that bill stand? Yeah, so that bill, there's actually two bills. They're companions, one in the House and one in the Senate, and they both did pass, I think unanimously, and are obviously sent to the, the next House. So certainly see that moving through. Um, that's been a source of discussion at the State House since last session as well. Legislators are hearing from from teacher candidates, from educators in the field, that the ed TPA is, is just not necessary. Um, it's a it's a pretty big source of um, stress and anxiety for teacher prep candidates. In many cases, they're doing that test. They're going through that process as they're also doing their student teaching, 
which can be pretty stressful as well. There's also a cost to it. And so there's been a movement to just remove it from uh, from the pr teacher prep requirements. Several other states have done that as well. They just don't see it as a necessary element to a, um, a successful teacher prep program. It's also been paused for the last several years throughout the disaster proclamation. So again, um, there, there is a you know, pretty big push there, I would say, to, um, to just kind of eliminate that from the teacher prep coursework. Um, however, there are some advocacy groups that push back against that. They, they do believe that there's a need for it to be included in the prep, um, in the prep process. And so the way that the bills read right now is that it's going to um, extend the timeline for where the, the, the EdTPA is no longer required. It's going to extend that through 2025. And between now and 2025, there's going to be a task force that reviews the EdTPA that looks into other options for, you know, for some sort of assessment at the end of the program that could be utilized in lieu of the EdTPA. And then hopefully by the time that uh, 2025 rolls around, we'll have either a new process or we will have decided we, we don't need that anymore. There's been some discussion about letting each institution of higher ed make their own decision about what kind of assessment to have students participate in before they're issued their, um, you know, their, their diploma. Um, so that could potentially be an outcome from this task force as well. But that's where that stands as of right now. Thank you for that update. Uh, IESA, uh, we're pushing several, a couple of uh, key bills uh, this, this session. Uh, what are those uh, initiatives and kind of where do things stand? Yeah, so we've been working on a couple of initiatives, House Bill 2233 and Senate Bill 2324. Um, as well as House Bill 3690. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about those. Um, House Bill 2233 was an initiative to increase um, competitive bid and construction bid thresholds for districts. Um, you know, we did have some pushback in the legislature um, from some labor unions in regards to the construction bid threshold piece. And we realized that uh, with that opposition and leaving that construction bid threshold piece in, we weren't going to be able to move the bill forward. So we did negotiate that portion out, but we are can we will continue to work on that. Um, House Bill twenty two thirty three right now, as it stands, just increases the competitive bid threshold from twenty five thousand to thirty five thousand, and it moved through the House with no issues, um, and then it's in the Senate right now. Um, the next piece of legislation we've been working on uh, um, with a lot of other education stakeholders is Senate Bill 2324, and this essentially just increases ballot access to uh, the county school's facility sales tax. So essentially what this piece of legislation does is it just adds another option for the question to be asked or posed to the voters. So... Um, I'm sure as many of you are very aware that will listen to this podcast that um, if you're a school district that has over 50% of the student population, um, that particular board and district gets to decide whether or not the question about accessing ca the county school's facility sales tax even gets placed on the ballot. 
we are not removing that portion whatsoever. We're just adding another option that says, or if two thirds of districts in that county vote to see it on the ballot, then it can be asked. So essentially um, what we're asking is that if two thirds of those school districts in that county ask for that question to be on the ballot, then it can be. The voters still have to decide, but it does give districts the opportunity to at least ask the question or pose the question to the voters. Um, This particular sales tax is um, a really good one to access, you know, of course for facilities, but back in 2019, 2019, there was an expansion of what you could use the county school's facility sales tax for, and that included um, mental health um, and uh, in the sense of student wellness and as well as school safety. So we're hoping that that piece of legislation um, moves through the House, and we've been working on that as well. And then um, the last piece of legislation, I, I, you know, I will say, um, Emily, jump in if, if you feel um, House Bill 3690 is an attempt by a lot of education stakeholders and a lot of work um, that had gone over, like had really taken place over the summer, all the way through the fall until now. I'll give a lot of credit to um, the Illinois Principals Association who led this charge. But essentially, we are trying, what we're trying to do is consolidate trainings. And the objective of this piece of legislation is to consolidate trainings based on licensure renewal cycle. Um, And so what a lot of us did, we went back through statutes, tried to find every piece of training that's required of you and your staff and just consolidate them and put them into buckets and have it just make sense and then tie it to licensure. So those are some of the things we've been working on. Um, we're hopeful that we can see all three pieces of these, um, all three pieces uh, of legislation move through the process and hopefully be signed into law. Yeah, I would just add, I think with the training consolidation bill, um, again, props to IPA, um, they did a, a great job working on this. And we also worked pretty closely with the IEA and the IFT as well as the other school management organizations on this. Um, There's a recognition that the mandated trainings continue to grow every single session. And it's it's pretty messy when you look at the code. There's different trainings in different sections of code. There's some that are required every year, some that are required every other year, some that it's really ambiguous on how often it's even required. So in many cases, I would imagine districts probably just do the safest thing and require them every year. And so the goal here has been to clarify a lot of the ambiguity surrounding some of these trainings and to also, like Madeline said, kind of consolidate some of them because some of them can be combined into one training. So it's, it's, it would be difficult to eliminate some of those trainings because, you know, all of these trainings were someone's, um, you know, someone's important piece of legislation or were the result of negotiations from a much larger, more cumbersome bill where when stakeholders negotiated it, they ended up saying, well, okay, how about we don't do all of this extra stuff over here, but we will add a training so a lot of times some of these trainings that, that we see are the result of um, 
of a negotiation that allowed a bad bill to become less bad. And so it's it's difficult to get something out of statute once it's in there, but there's certainly room here to consolidate some of these trainings and to pare them down a little bit. And then again, as Madeline mentioned, the idea is that you would do these trainings once every five years. It just makes sense to tie it to the licensure cycle, which is you know, which is it was five years. Um, hopefully, the the trainings could transfer to new school districts if we're able to get um, a system set up. We're working with ISB on that. Um, it would you know it is going to be a pretty big endeavor, but we're hopeful that we can at least get the bill passed this session and then work through some of those kinks with the state board moving forward. Um, I, I will say that it. It did not pass the House by the third reading deadline two weeks ago. The House did have to adjourn pretty abruptly on the final night of their scheduled um, deadline. But we have heard from the sponsor that there's a possibility for an extension. So that would allow the bill to be heard when they return from from spring break on the 18th. All right. Any uh, any kind of closing thoughts, uh, important things for superintendents uh, to know about this legislative session? Yeah, I would probably add in that there's been a conversation at the state level about universal meals for all students. And just to give a little background on on how those conversations have gone, obviously during the pandemic, we saw universal meals for all of our students that the federal government paid for and provided re- pretty significant reimbursement to districts for the provision of those meals. Um, that flexibility was much needed during the pandemic. And after things subsided and that provision went away at the federal level, there were several states that decided to introduce their own kind of statewide universal meal bills. Um, In particular, California, Colorado, Maine, they've already passed legislation that is permanent for universal meals in their states. There's like six or seven other states that have introduced bills and are moving through the process. And then a couple that have done so on like a temporary basis, maybe to kind of ride out the, um, you know, the the tails of the pandemic, if you will. And so there is legislation here in in Illinois that is moving. Uh, it started in the House, House Bill twenty four seventy one. Essentially, the bill would create the program. So it would it directs ISBE to create the Healthy School Meals for All program. And our advocacy efforts on this front have maintained that this is, that's great. But if you're going to do that, obviously the state needs to pay for it. The state needs to provide the reimbursement to the school districts for the provision of those meals, because that's certainly not a cost that, that our districts can bear on their own. And so the language that ended up moving is the creation of the program. It is optional for districts to opt into the program. And if the district does opt into the program and there is an appropriation from the state level, then the state board would reimburse each district for for the cost of those meals. Um, Though Part of the conversation, though, has been that we really need to maximize any federal dollars that we can. So for schools that are eligible for community eligibility provision or CEP, if they were eligible for CEP, they would need to enroll in that before they could join the Healthy School Meals for All program. Because again, there's a desire to make sure we maximize federal reimbursement, because that would obviously offset the cost of any state reimbursement that would be required. 
there's still a lot of um, question about how much money it would take to fund this proposal. And I know the advocates have been working really hard to generate a number for the appropriation request. Again, that's something that we really won't know about until the final weeks of session when the budget talks really ramp up and we start seeing a budget formed. Um, But I certainly do see the bill moving forward and the program at least being there and in statute so that when the GA decides that this is a program that they can and want to fund, that it will already be set up and and be ready for districts to opt into if they so choose. Thank you, uh, Emily and Madeline. And of course, uh, IESA will be continuing to update our members uh, about what's happening at the State House uh, in our Capital Watch uh, legislative updates. 